0: And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Missy Jenkins-Smith, who had a near-death experience after being a victim of a shooting at her school. Missy, thank you for joining me and welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Can you please start on the day that it happened and go from there?
1: Sure. Um... That day was um, December the first, uh, nineteen ninety-seven. I was fifteen years old and a sophomore in high school. My school was um, the smallest of three schools in our county, and so really, the school that that the school that I went to, Heath High School, it was out of the three. My parents said were the was the one that um they that was supposed to be the safest. It was just a country school. And there was only about 600 kids that went there. I knew every single person in the school. And if I didn't really know them personally, I knew, at least knew their name. And so um, that morning was a Monday after Thanksgiving break. And I remember at being off of school for five days and being a teenager. I'm a night person, not a morning person. So it was hard to get up. I remember my dad coming in and singing the most annoying song to wake us up in the morning. And me and my twin sister put ourselves together as fast as we could. And I remember exactly what I was wearing that day. I was wearing a pair of Adidas uh, pants, some Adidas shoes that um, had blue um, stripes on it. had a black Adidas shirt with blue stripes. So it kind of all matched. And I threw my hair up in a ponytail. And instead of, and this is one of the things that I really regret and wish I would have done differently and try to remind myself of this all the time, Instead of stopping and taking the time out to hug my parents and to tell them how much I loved them, um, I didn't do. I just yelled at them. I just yelled bye and then ran out of the door. And I never knew that that day was going to change my life forever. That was a day that I, I could have not have come home. That would have been the last time that my parents would have possibly seen me. But um, I also uh, would ride to school with my best friend's older sister. She was a senior and my best friend was a freshman and she lived in my neighborhood. And so I knew that if I didn't hurry and get out into the car, then she, that her sister was going to leave us. And then that would leave me having to ride the bus, which I was over. I was ready to get my license because me and my twin sister were turning uh, 16 on Christmas Eve that month. So I was looking forward to that and excited about that. But I knew that I had to hurry up and get in that car, and so we got in the car and we drove to school and got there on time every morning. My sophomore year, uh, me and my sister would attend a prayer circle that met in the lobby of our high school, and it was it was volunteer. It was right before the bell rang uh, for the five minute bell to get to class before you're late, and so it was before school started. And there's probably about thirty kids that would meet, and we would always give prayer requests, and then somebody, or first somebody would yell, time to pray, and we'd get in the circle. We would do prayer requests, and then pray, and then say amen, and then that was it. It was a very short um, thing, but it was kind of a way for me to kind of lay out, like, all the stress that I kind of had, and I wasn't always one to, you know, add to the request or prayers, but, you know, mentally, I was able to, you know, share in all the stresses that I had um, as a high school student. And then that morning, I think I had a, a World Civ test. And so I really needed prayers for that because I wasn't good at it. But anyway, um, nothing seemed out of the ordinary that morning when I was pr- in prayer circle. And there was always other students, like groups of students outside of the, of the prayer circle. So other people being around wasn't abnormal. And the office uh, was across the hall um, from the prayer circle in the lobby. And then the front door, there were lots of kids coming in from being dropped off as a car rider. So there, besides the prayer circle, there were other students around. But um, somebody yelled time to pray, and we got into the circle. I don't even remember what we prayed about, but I know that after we said amen, I had just enough time to walk to the middle of the lobby, on the way to get my backpack, and then to my first class world civ. But before I could get there, the first thing I saw was a fourteen-year-old girl get shot in the head, and the person that did this was was also fourteen. Um, he pulled out the twenty-two out of his backpack and started shooting at us. And like I said, I I, I saw the girl um, get shot, and I knew her. Her name was Nicole, but I never saw him with the gun. And so at that point after seeing her, I remember just kind of standing there and looking at her and trying, I guess when you go into shock, you try to make sense of what you're looking at. And so I then started telling myself, this is a joke. This isn't real. She's going to get up and she's going to be fine. And I remembered hearing the gunshots and I am not, I was not familiar then, um, what uh, like the sound of guns and what it sounded like, uh, definitely didn't sound like guns on television but it sounded like firecrackers. So that also made more sense to me that this was a joke. And so I remember hearing three slow pops. So the first shot hit Nicole. And then after that, it was a spray of bullets and I was hitting the spray. And the feeling of being shot, I guess for me, was the, the best way I could describe it was almost kind of like fainting, fainting in a way. It was like my entire body went numb. There was a ringing in my ears. And then as I fell down to the floor, I felt like it was floating and the impact of hitting the floor didn't even hurt. I landed on the ground. And then as soon as I landed on the ground, my twin sister, who um, saw the first girl get shot, um, she also saw the boy with the gun. So she knew what was happening. And she also um, felt a bullet go through her hair. But she was on her way to me. Um whenever she felt the bullet go through her hair so I always think of how the fact that if I wasn't there if I would have made the decision to do something else you know what could have happened to my sister but she got down on the ground and she covered me while he was still shooting and then when he finally stopped that's when I started questioning her as to what was going on because I didn't know why I was on the ground I didn't know the only thing I knew was that I couldn't feel my stomach but I never noticed my legs. And I think, again, it was shock. But she finally told me that there was a gun. And then she told me who did it. And I knew him. He was a freshman. He was some, He was in band with me. He was somebody that I liked to be around. He was like a class clown. And I enjoyed being around him. And he was the last person that I would have ever thought that would have done, he, that would have done something like this. But when she told me that there was a gun, I knew I'd been shot. And I shared with her about not feeling, being able to fill my stomach. And we both didn't know what that meant, but I felt okay at that time. Like I didn't feel sick. I didn't feel like anything was wrong. Um, My sister couldn't find a bullet wound because my shirt was black and we couldn't find blood. And I think I was also bleeding probably a lot internally. Um, We looked over to our right and we saw um, our best friend Kelly holding her left shoulder and crying. She'd been grazed on the left shoulder. And it had made a pretty big uh, wound because she was bleeding everywhere. And so my twin sister looked at me and she said, Be strong, don't die. I'll be back to check on you. And so she went to check on our friend. And then both of them came and talked to me. But I don't even remember what we talked about. But at some point, my twin sister left the lobby and she went um, to the, and at that point, there was no such thing as, lockdown drills that kids do now for, for school shootings. There was, we didn't have a resource officer at the school. None of those things existed. So there was zero plan as to what to do. So they were sending eventually sending all the kids to the gym that was detached outside of the school. And so my sister headed that direction and um, saw our friend that we rode to school with that morning. And she actually um, went into the lobby of the, of the gym and there was, there was a payphone which is um ancient and hard to find and very rare now. But it was around the time where cell phones existed, but we didn't carry them like kids do today or all of us do. Um we we it was back in 97, you know, we we didn't have one. And so um my sister was able to call my parents on the payphone and tell them exactly what had happened and that when she left me that I was talking. So she was able to give them at least peace of mind as to that I was talking, and that I was conscious, and that maybe I was going to be okay. Uh, There were two hospitals in Paducah, so they didn't have any idea which one I would end up being at, so they just had to choose a hospital, and um, my aunt, and my grandmother, and my uncle went to the other hospital to sit and wait for me, Um, but while that was happening with my family, I was um, still laying on the floor in the lobby, you know, wondering what was going to happen to me. I remember, my algebra teacher that I had that year. Um, and I was terrible at math. So I was surprised that she was the teacher sitting beside me, but she, she started to pray for me. And that was the first time that I started getting scared and and thinking about the fact that I could possibly die. And so then I looked at my teacher and I said, am I going to die? And she said, no, you're not going to die. You're going to be fine. And then I said, well, I'm paralyzed because I can't feel my stomach. And at that point I realized I was, I couldn't move my legs. I said, I I, am paralyzed. I know I am. And she said, no, you're just in shock. You'll, you'll be fine. And I, I think that she knew that I knew exactly what was happening to me, but she was doing her best to try to keep me from, you know, going into shock and, and to, um, keep me calm. But, um, after talking with my, um, teacher about my injury and and um and the fact that you know th- that I was scared i then started to get really tired and i wanted to close my eyes and she kept telling me don't close your eyes keep them open don't close them and i remember that like i got to a point where i couldn't fight it anymore i was so tired and so i closed them and when i closed them the next thing i remember was almost like like I woke up from a from a bad dream. I didn't really remember everything about it. I um, knew that it had something had happened that was a bad dream, but it was like you know I kind of knew a little bit about it, but it's like I didn't focus so much on it. I was just like, oh, that was a bad dream. That was terrible. But that what I was experiencing at that moment was what was real, and that that was not real. What had just happened—the bad dream, the shooting. And after that, I remember, I, I, like, I don't even really remember this setting. It was like, I remember that I was sitting with people and, or walking with people and talking to them. I, I felt comfortable with the people I was with. Um, I, I talked a lot to the person, to the person that was on my right. And I don't, I don't know who the person was, but I felt comfortable with them and I could talk to them. It was like, I knew them and the other people that was with us. Um, I don't remember what we talked about. There was a conversation, but I don't even remember the conversation, but I remember being happy. I remember, um, like understanding what was going on at that moment or what we were doing. We were just walking all together. And I remember even the person, there was a, there was somebody on a bike that rode beside me. And I had to scoot over and I knocked into the person beside me on my right. And we laughed about it, but I don't know what we talked about. I don't know if it was male or female. I don't remember anything, but whenever, then all of a sudden it was just like, everything went black. And then as if I had faded, the, the ceiling came back into focus and I was staring at the ceiling and I was back in the lobby and I was just like, this really happened and I'm looking around, but once I was back in that situation, I had a different perspective or a different feeling. I wasn't scared anymore. I had this sense of that I knew I was going to be fine, that I was going to be alive, and that everything was going to be okay. I remember um, while we waiting for the ambulances, because that's basically where we um, what we did until you know um, they arrived. I remember looking to my right. And I was watching this girl that I knew. She was 17 years old. She was a senior. And she was, um, at that point, my teacher that was with me before, she was with um, that student. And my chemistry teacher was with her as well. And I remember seeing this girl rolling all over the ground, and she was moaning because she'd been shot. Um, And then I remember hearing my teacher say, over and over again, she's not gonna make it. She's not gonna make it. And I watched this whole scene until the ambulances came to get us. And I didn't realize that I was actually watching this girl die because she died in surgery two hours later. And then when they put me in an ambulance, they put me in the ambulance with somebody they were giving CPR to. And I didn't know who the person was, but I do what well, I do know um, as I was in the ambulance, I remember just feeling calm still, like everything was going to be okay. And the paramedic that was trying to, he was trying to give me an IV and he was all over the ambulance. And the first thing I was like, you're not going to stick me with the IV. And you're like, not even, can't even stand up straight. And I said, why don't we wait till we get to the hospital and you help, them over here with CPR help this person. And the, and the paramedic was just like, okay. And then he went and helped the, the the person that was getting CPR. I didn't know who that person was, but I later found out it was my friend, Casey, who was shot in the head and killed. Um, I, when I got to the, uh, emergency room, I remember still feeling calm and and that everything was gonna be okay. And when they started, they gave me two IVs. Uh, one was giving me blood. I ended up having two pints of blood and the other um, IV was giving me fluids. I had to have a chest tube put into the side, in my side. And then I, um, and after that, then they also started performing tests on me. They would take a needle and poke me or ask me to move my feet. And I couldn't feel the pokes and I couldn't move my feet. But at that moment, they then told me as far as they knew, I was paralyzed. And you would think that a normal person would actually um, believe that or or would be upset or think my life's over and would be devastated because I knew what being paralyzed was, that it, there wasn't a cure, that this was something that I was going to have to live with for the rest of my life. But I had this, I still had that sense of calm. And I felt like, everything was going to be okay. But I also knew this was something that I needed, I should be crying over. So I thought I looked crazy for being okay or looking okay. So I tried to make myself cry. And then I looked stupid and silly because I was a bad actress. And so I just, I just stopped crying. I, I just kind of went with it. And when we got into, well, and I remember even comforting my family, whenever they came in to tell me, Um, you know, or to talk to me and to see me. And I remember my grandmother coming in and crying and I was like, grandma, it's okay. I'm going to be fine. I'm going to be okay. Um, After I saw my family, they then took me to the x-ray to find out what um, happened with the bullet. And I think that's when, after hearing about the, the, my injury, that's when I realized how blessed I was to still be alive. I uh, learned, because I didn't know much about 22s whatsoever, but I learned that 22s, when you're shot with one, um, they bounce around inside your body, but the bullet entered my left shoulder. There's like a little purple dot. You can't even see from where you're at, but there's a little tiny purple dot. It's almost even hard for me to find sometimes. It's like right here. The bullet entered through there. It completely missed my heart because your heart is right there bounced around inside, inside my body, missing every major artery and organ besides hitting my lung. And after hitting my lung, it hit my spinal cord. Um, uh, and so I was paralyzed. For, uh, I'm paralyzed from the mid chest down, which is um, called a T4, T5 in injury. The fourth and fifth thoracic vertebrae of my spinal cord is, is uh, damaged. And the bullet then exited my back, but didn't even go through the back of my shirt. And for me, I felt it, it was just crazy for that that bullet was all over my body, missed every major artery and organ that could kill me, and then wouldn't even go through the back of my shirt. So I didn't have to have surgery to have it removed. No surgery was needed. And I um, was realizing that it, it missed my heart. And at that point, I was, I was happy to be alive. I had found out that three girls died um, ages 14 16 and 17 I knew all of them and the three and and I was still alive so I felt like you know even though I couldn't walk the fact that you know being paralyzed was nothing compared to not having my life or the rest of my life and so i, I kind of continued to surprise myself on how I was able to handle the situation as time went on um I I struggled in the beginning a lot of times. Um, I guess whenever I was trying to learn how to use the wheelchair or, or starting after I got over my injury to my lung and um, I started trying to learn how to sit up again and, and dress myself, those things were really hard. And at 16 years old, it was very frustrating. And I remember uh, the last victim that um, was was shot, that person left on December the 16th. And I was the only person left in the hospital. And I just wanted to go home. And I knew that it was gonna be a long time before I went home. So I had a moment of wanting to give up that I just wanted to lay in bed for the rest of my life that it was gonna be too hard. I was 16 and I should be a teenager, hanging out with friends and and going out on dates and things like that. And and being excited about getting my license like I was. And I knew that that was gonna be something that was gonna have to be delayed even further at that point. But I always felt like, I guess I call them God sightings in a way that there was always something that was sent to encourage me and remind me that everything was going to be okay. And so whenever I started having those feelings of like, I'm going to quit, that's when I started receiving letters from people all over the world. Um, The most I received in one day was 600 letters and 45 packages Um, My mom would sit beside my bed and whether I was awake or whether I wanted to hear them or not, she read each letter to me and she opened up so many with her letter opener that she even tried to butter her bread at lunch with it. And She's like, what am I doing? You know, like, but she, um, but she sat and read them to me and eventually I started listening to them and I started thinking that there were so many people that didn't know me that were taking the time out to write me and to tell me that they that they cared and that they were thinking of me, that I no longer felt alone at that point. And I felt like if these people that don't even know me aren't giving up on me, why am I giving up on myself? So then I continued pushing myself till I was able to start um, using the wheelchair and, and started uh, learning how to live my life in a wheelchair and I wasn't giving up. And so it, it seemed like there was always encouragement as time went on, like whenever I got ready to go back to school, I became concerned and worried about how people would treat me because I was in a wheelchair. Like, what could I do? What kind of things? I was in choir. And so I knew we did a um a music and dance production. And I thought, if I was still gonna be a part of that, can I dance in a wheelchair? Um, I was in band. So I thought, am I gonna be able how am I gonna be able to march when we do competitions? I played soccer and I knew that wasn't gonna be an option, but there were things that were changing in my life and I didn't. And I was the only person that was in a wheelchair in my school at this point. And everyone that I knew, knew me walking. I was scared of how I would be treated. But I was then invited to a camp. It was in Alabama where I learned how to water ski, jet ski, ride a horse, climb a tree. I would have to say that I was realizing at that point that I had done more in a wheelchair than I'd ever done walking. And so then that was encouraging to me. It told me that I uh, that I didn't need to get up of myself, that I was capable of doing things. I'd have to do them differently, but I was so capable of doing anything I wanted to do. And I felt like no one judged me. I felt like my, my um, classmates were very encouraging and helpful. And especially my friends and my sister, I had a lot of support through those people. So I had people that were always there for me. And then um, my senior year, right before my senior year, whenever I'm supposed to walk across the the stage to get my diploma, I was then asked to go to a hospital in Los Angeles where a doctor had developed a brace uh, that would allow me to walk. And it wasn't going to be a cure, but it would give me the chance to walk across the stage for graduation. And it came just in time for me to graduate, and so I went to Los Angeles the first semester of my senior year, which I had no problem doing um, at that at that age. It was it was awesome, but I learned how to walk in my in my brace, and I used it in March of 2000 to walk a quarter of a mile in the Los Angeles Marathon, and then I used it to walk across the stage for graduation. I also used it during my senior prom to stand up and dance. Um, I could actually look my date in the face. Uh, My my junior year, I had my date in my lap and he was in the floor and I didn't know what to do with him. So I actually, you know, I felt like that was another gift that was given to me to remind me that, you know, you're still gonna get to live your life. And I had to look for those things. Um, I also then had the ability to speak. There were things about me that changed because I was a very shy person. I would have never put myself out there to, um, you know, be in the spotlight or for, um, or to share a message or to talk like I am now nonstop. I never would have done that. And there were things about me that I was learning that I never thought I had before. And so I really felt like I was given a purpose at that point. And I I really think that during my, my NDE, I really think that even though I didn't remember who the people were, I think that they were friends or family. They were people that I was close to, maybe even God, maybe Jesus. I, I don't know, but I, I was comfortable with that person. But I know at this point that the conversation they were having with me, was that person telling me it wasn't my time and that I had to go back and that I was going to be okay and to not be afraid because I, 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 that's the only thing I can think of that we could have talked about, you know, and I seemed happy and then I was okay. And so I kind of feel like whenever it's time, it's our time that it's almost going to be like, I, I guess like, it's almost going to be like, we're going to go to sleep and it's like waking up from a bad dream that what we're experiencing right now is not real that this is really the dream this is the part that's not real and that one day we'll wake up and that is what will be real and um that's kind of what I felt and I remember all through my life being scared of dying being scared of death and I, I remember at four and five years old um constantly thinking about the fact that my parents were older and that they were going to die as I, at a young age or me as a young age, because I was, um, the youngest of six siblings. My brother's 22, 22 years older than me. So he's the oldest sibling. And so at that point, my parents were 40 and 45, and I knew that I wasn't going to get to spend the time with them. Like my other siblings, and so I guess I focused and was constantly worried about them passing away, and then and then I guess the thought of death and 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 me dying too. And I felt like I learned that day that it's nothing to fear, but that this is the bad dream that we're living, and we'll wake up to what is real, and that is going to be not a bad dream. You know, it's going to be a lot more, lot more um, positive and loving and and happy like I was feeling with the people that I was with um whenever we wake when we wake up. So um to me, um my near death experience was something that kind of gave me that sense of there's nothing to be scared of. And um I always have to kind of remind myself of that, that there's nothing to be scared of, that I can continue living my life, that I could do this because one day I'll wake up and I won't have to deal with this anymore so and and look for those sightings or those messages that i'm receiving um from i guess the other side that says keep on going you're going to be okay just keep on going because you're still fulfilling your purpose you're doing what you're supposed to do because i did question why am i still here and there were three other girls that died because even one of the girls the girl that was laying down beside me that i mentioned she was shot the exact same place i was I don't think she was paralyzed, but she was shot through the left shoulder, but it ended up hitting an artery and she bled to death. Um, I always question kind of, like, why am I still here? And it doesn't make sense to me. You know, why was I chosen to still be here? And then she's, she's gone. But I think that that survivor's guilt, that, that feeling of that questioning why is what motivates me to not... Take what I have of life that's left, and just waste it away. To to not focus on negative, I try to try to choose to be happy and look at those positives. I try to go through all the frustrations and you know, like the why these and the frustrating things I have to go through those. But then I have to remind myself, I have a family, I have children. I I you know was able to live my life, and those three girls weren't, and for that you know and I was given this purpose that I need to f- fulfill and it would be like doing them a disservice to give up on myself if that makes sense and to not do what I felt like I was the purpose I was given to to finish in this dream or whatever this life or whatever that um, to, to make the best of this um, bad dream that um, I was living
0: Missy thank you for sharing your story with us sure You mentioned that this is the dream and over there it's real. Mm
1: -hmm. Would you
0: say then that the other side is more real than you and I sitting here?
1: Yes. I really feel like this is not, this is not real. This is, you know, like, I guess, I guess we're fulfilling a purpose or doing something. And one day that will be over or that we'll wake up from whatever it is that we're doing over here. And I, and we'd mentioned before, kind of like a simulation in a way, like, I, it was almost like, you know, like, that's what I woke up from that, you know, that wasn't real. And it was like, I, you know, I, I felt this like, okay, relief, a sigh of relief. and like, it, it's fine. That's, that wasn't real and that everything, and I was happy and everything was okay. And I was walking, you know, and it was, it, it that, that's the feeling that I had.
0: I know you can't remember much, but do you think that when you were on the other side, You completely forgot about Missy in this life.
1: Yes, I did. I don't, and I don't even remember consciously, like if I referred to myself like Missy, I I don't know. It was just like, I could walk. I was happy. I was that, I I didn't think about what had just happened. It was a bad dream and I woke up from it and I could only remember, you know, a little bit, but I didn't focus on it. I was just doing whatever I was doing at that point. If that makes any sense. Mm -hmm.
0: And I'm assuming that you were so calm when you came back because you knew what to expect and what was going to happen already.
1: Right. I felt like that's what I was being told, like, what, you know, what was going to happen and that it's nothing to be afraid of and not to get scared because I was getting scared before, you know, I left, you know, what was happening and, and woke up um, and it was like that whole different feeling. I had this different, um, different mindset. I wasn't scared. I. I was able to look at that, the, the positive side of things, um, you know, get through the negative and the frustration, because I definitely have that for sure. Um, in the past 25 years, you know, my, my body's not the same anymore. Um, I've had, I have injuries to my shoulders and my, I have severe carpal tunnel. I've, um, I've had surgeries because of certain things. I just in November, I fell out of my wheelchair, broke my left femur, um, there's not a lot of paralyzed perks, but I heard the femur break is the worst you could ever have, and I didn't feel it. it, but I still had to had to deal with being in the hospital and and all those frustrating things. I was actually in surgery for my femur break on December first, which was 25 years after I'd been shot, and it was like almost like that that day was still haunting me. You know, it 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 still was causing me problems 25 years later. And if I hadn't been shot in a wheelchair, I wouldn't more than likely would have been having surgery for a femur break at that point. And it was just kind of odd how like things like that, you know, happen, you know, it's just, it, it's like that, you know, needle in a haystack kind of thing, if that makes sense. Um, you know, like for after 25 years for me to have, you know, that, it was almost like I'm being tested, like, you know, cause I had a um, surgery on my um, shoulder on my left shoulder uh, I had a rotator cuff injury, and I had that surgery March of uh, 2021. And I remember, I mean, like I was i was in a bed, only able to move my right arm for five months. Um, I had to learn how to do everything all over again, like I did when I was 15. I had to learn how to sit up again. I had to learn how to dress myself. And I wasn't prepared for that in the beginning. I never thought of the fact that I would have to do that. And then at the age I was, you know, um, early 40s, um, late 30s at the time, I had laying in bed for five months, I I gained weight. So it made it harder to kind of move around. And so I had, um, there was things that were trying to test me to make me make the, make the situation harder. And, but I didn't give up. I still yelled and screamed and said, why me? But I kept going. And so then finally, December of 2021, I was done with physical therapy. I was able to do most everything independently again, whenever my rotator rotator cuff injury was causing me to rely on my husband to help me get dressed or to help me transfer. And so after finally getting through that, then when November 2022 came and I broke my femur, I was back in the hospital with another surgery on the day of you know, the anniversary of 25 years. And I just that past September, we had had um, the parole hearing for him, his sentence was um, 25 years to life. And so he was up for parole um, in September. And a lot of people felt a sense of like, because I don't think there's such thing as closure, because, you know, I feel like, you know, I'm still living my life, I'm still dealing with the wheelchair. But It was supposed to be like a, 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 not a, not a fear that he could possibly get out and, and come because I mean, there was a possibility he could have, you know, just went home to his parents and, uh, had a, he would have had a, um, a, um, oh, parole officer, (laughs) but he would have, he would have had a parole officer. He wouldn't have had any kind of monitor to monitor, monitor himself. And he could have, he could go down. Uh, to my home and sit in my driveway if you wanted to and so that kind of thing was a little nerve wracking and and it scared my kids you know that kind of thing was something they were worried about and so when we found out that he wasn't going to be granted parole and that he was going to serve out his sentence um there was a sense of like okay now we can breathe there's not going to be what's next but then I kind of felt like I was still living in the what's next if that makes sense because then all of a sudden I had the femur break and that was another test to say like, are you going to give up? Are you going to say this is over? Because I had just gotten through all of the stuff that I had with my shoulder surgery and then getting back to physically doing things by myself again. And then here I was being drugged back down and it was frustrating, but I got, I'm getting through it. I'm almost to the end of um, my physical therapy and the, and the, um, healing from that, from the femur break. So fingers crossed, hopefully there's not going to be another test in my way, um, anytime soon, but I know now realistically that, you know, things aren't, you know, I try to be optimistic, but things aren't going to be like constantly, um, like it's not, I know it's going to be going downhill from here. You know, that makes sense. Um, I always said that, I believe that one day I would walk, but if I didn't walk in this life, I would walk in heaven or that place over there because I know I was walking then. And so, um, you know, I think that's why I have to keep reminding myself that that's what's over there, that it's going to be not worrying and not, and I'm going to be happy that things are going to be fine because I know that that's what was over there. And that this is just an experience that will be over like a bad dream Something.
0: Have you noticed since your experience that you have any new abilities that you didn't have prior that would possibly seem like psychic?
1: I think that maybe the ability to kind of like um, look at, at things in, um, in, in a different way. I think that my ability to look at the positive and not let the negative get to me, like like anger, I, I forgave the shooter um, the day I was shot. And a lot of people don't understand that, um, you know, what forgiveness really is. And I think things like that, like concepts like that, that I wouldn't have ever really thought of if that makes sense, like a deeper sense of like concepts like that. So forgiveness, I, I realized that forgiveness is something that is for me, that it's not for him, that because I forgave him doesn't mean that he is, is exonerated from his um, consequences of what he did. He was, um, he was sentenced 25 years to life, you know, for prison to prison. And I don't have to be in prison, though. I don't have to live my life with anger, and I don't like the feeling of anger. I think some people like anger, that it makes they like the adrenaline rush, but I don't. I think anger, being angry, is exhausting. It's, um, it. it I, I love the feeling of being happy, and I would rather be happy. So I think that choice to forgive is what let me off, and that I didn't have to live with the consequences of that day. So those kind of concepts a way of thinking that I probably would have never thought that I could get there. I probably on the other side would have said, you know, if I, if I wasn't paralyzed, I would look at being paralyzed and say, my life will be over. I would, I would, you know, I wouldn't be able to live, but I realized that I can live. And then I've learned these things that I'm able to share with other people because, um, cause I'm a public speaker now. Mm-hmm. One of the, the other things that I thought I would never do in my life and being able to to share things that I've learned and hope and hopefully helping other people and giving me that purpose and it's not every day at 15 years old you find the purpose of your life there's people that are 80 and they're like why was I you know why was I here on this earth what's going on and I I was blessed to know why I'm doing what I'm doing if any of that makes sense but yeah that's kind of I would have to say that's being able to look at life in a different way and to take on those challenges and break them down and not let it bring me down and make me quit. Because I guess at that point that I would lose, I wouldn't be able to live my life.
0: If you met somebody who went through some type of tragedy similar to yours mm-hmm. and were questioning, you know, whether to go on or not, what kind of encouragement would you give them?
1: I would tell them that it's not going to be easy. That that things are going to be difficult, and there's going to be times where you're going to want to scream and say, "I'm done with this," and that everything's over. But that if you keep that if you get through those negative things and let them out and cry and scream and throw something or whatever you want to do to get through that 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 um, frustration, then look at those positives that you still have in your life and those positives start outweighing all the negatives that you were just focusing on, you know, letting all that go, letting all that frustration out, but then focusing on what you do have and what you almost, you know, like what you, what others may not. I realize also that, you know, I'm paralyzed from the chest down. There's always, it could be worse. Um, I met um, a man who was dealing with ALS and I never knew much about ALS, but I'm, I went from seeing this man talk and walk to at the end, he was, he couldn't speak. He couldn't do anything but communicate with his eyes before he ended up pa- passing away. He couldn't tell me hi, but I remember seeing him for, for the last time and he looked at me and his eyes said hello. And I couldn't imagine because he just had a grandbaby born. He wasn't able to hold the baby. He wasn't, um, his uh, daughter got married. He wasn't able to walk her down the aisle. There was things that, and so I look at that and I, thought, and I think to myself, that's got to be hard. It could always be a lot worse than what you're dealing with or what you're going through. So I think that's what you have to remind yourself, that you're going to get thrown um, curveballs, but you can get through them. Just remember what is good in your life and that it could always be worse than what you're dealing with.
0: When you told your family and friends about being on the other side, how did they react?
1: They believed me. I was worried that they wouldn't believe me. like that I was possibly making some something up or that um that it was a, another part of my shock being in shock that it was you know something that that I'd made up in my head. I was worried that they would feel that way. But my family was, I guess even kind of encouraged about, you know, their, their view of death in a way that, that it wasn't something to fear and to be scared of. Um, my twin sister, uh, really thought it was, um, really, um, believed me and, and really thought the whole, um, concept of, of the near-death experience that I experienced that was, you know, like a relief for her too, because she, you know, the same as I, feared Our parents dying and feared death whenever we were younger, and so it was like they were encouraged and the, and they believed me. And so I guess I sometimes I, I I worry that those around me may not, you know, believe me or believe in this that type of thing happening. But um, you know, I can only feel like it's an encouraging thing to share what I experienced because you know there was so much fear I had growing up with with dying that now I think that's how I'm able to live my life and, and focus on the positive and, and, and know that one day that I'm not going to have to worry about dealing with all this. It's, I just got to get through it right now and that everything will be okay and everything will be fine. I do question, you know, on the other side is it, are my kids going to be my kids or, is my twin sister going to be my twin sister? Like, you know, those kind of things. Cause I, I, I don't know the I pe- I don't know about the people that I was talking to or who they were, but only that I was comfortable with them and that I knew them and I liked being around them that they were, they were familiar and they were, it was more like home to me, but you know, that's kind of how I feel like with my husband and kids now and my, my family, I feel like that's home. But that felt the same way, if that makes any sense. I always feel like I'm not, you know. There's, it, it, there still feels like there's not words to describe it, if that. And so I still feel like I'm, I have to make sure somebody understands me because I feel like there's not words to explain even what I experienced, But I try.
0: Do you think that when you were back over there, you kind of basically knew everything?
1: Yeah. I think I did. I think I knew that there were going to be struggles that I knew. I I think those that I was being prepared to, you know, deal with that there's going to be, it's not going to be easy. And but then everything will eventually be okay. And so that, yeah, I think I was being prepared that whole time. And I don't even know, like I could even give you like an amount of time. It felt very quick like in the situation that I was in, it felt like, you know, it didn't last a very long time, but the whole time, the whole situation was going on anyway. It felt like it, the whole shooting was forever long, but it wasn't. It From the start to finish, like until the ambulances came to get us, it was really like 45 minutes and it felt like hours. But while I was there, it felt like a lot was accomplished in a short amount of time, if that makes sense. So
0: do you have any sense of time when you're over there or lack of time?
1: No, I felt like I was there for a very long time, but it didn't feel like I, I like learned a lot while I was there. like I was there for a while hours, but it wasn't it, but it felt short now, looking back at it. like I'm like I was like, but I felt like a lot was accomplished while I was there. Uh, that I was talking in with these people for a while and learning what I, uh, I, I was supposed to know. And that, and, but, but it, it, I guess it's a hard time it's, it's again, words that I can't describe. I felt like there was a long time that I was there, but now in this life, it was short to me. Like that's longer. This was, or this is longer. And that time was, if that makes sense. Um, I have a hard time trying to trying to describe it. It's like, I guess the days are longer here than think, what's going on there, if that's making sense.
0: Do you think it's possible then that time doesn't exist over there?
1: Yeah, that might be why I can't describe it. That might be because I can't. I felt like it was long, but it was short. I can't. So that's that. that very well could be that time isn't really an issue because that's what's real. And this is what we're counting the days and the, and the time that we're here on this earth right now, or what, or or in this situation. So that makes sense. (laughs) A lot of sense. Yeah.
0: It's interesting because talking to guests like you, it kind of brings up my own theories about the other side. And I just kind of felt, you know, that on the other side, it's eternity because there, it, it just time doesn't exist, and only right. time exists in realms like these.
1: Right, and that makes that makes sense whenever you bring that up. And I, I haven't talked about this uh, enough, I guess, to think of some of those things. And you bring that, you brought up something that that makes sense to me now, a lot of sense. So. Thank you. That, that, that kind of answered the question in a way, you know? Because I believe, that's why I believe Then, yeah, that's got to be what it is because I have the hardest time trying to explain explain it. I can explain time here, but not what I was experiencing over there
0: at all. Mm-hmm. I, You know, it just kind of makes me think of some kind of sci-fi movie, maybe like The Matrix, yeah. or maybe there's an old movie from the 80s, I can't remember. But, you know, like all of a sudden the person pops out of, this realm into a realm that there is no time, you know, like being right, in just this right. place that it's timeless.
1: Yeah. And, and it's like, I guess we we're talking earlier, kind of like a simulation, like I'm, this is the situation I'm, you know, I'm in this simulation of this type of life, I guess maybe. And there might be another simulation where I'm walking and I'm fine and I didn't get shot Um, or my sister was shot and killed because I wasn't shot and paralyzed and that she didn't see me because I, I almost went to the bathroom that morning. That's another example. Like I almost went, there was like morning signs kind of before the shooting happened that something, you know, like to, to, to not go to prayer circle that morning was odd. Like that very morning I felt like I just wanted to go and check my hair. And normally I wouldn't do that to leave prayer circle to go check my hair before class Um, and I asked my friend to go with me, my friend Kelly that I mentioned before that was shot as well. And she said, no, let's just stay. And then um and then we'll go after prayer circle. And I then I questioned, like, why didn't I ask my sister to go to the bathroom with me? Why you know, and so there may be other simulations where I did ask my sister to go to the bathroom with me or or my friend Kelly did go with me. I I don't know. Um, but I do know that the shooting has almost like given me things in a way for life. I look back and I think, you know, if this didn't happen to me, I probably wouldn't have made the decision to go to college. Uh, me and my twin sister were the only um, uh, out of the six kids in my family that actually graduated from college. Um, I may mean, not have had that motivation. I may have like straight out of high school, got married, um, had 10 kids and, you know, what, what and not focused on um, a career or anything with my life. You know, it, it just ch- kind of changed my direction. I guess the decisions that you make, it's kind of like, you know, do you make this decision or that one? Another decision was like when I was deciding on college, I was looking at a college in Los Angeles and I actually also doing headshots and talking to an agent, because I thought, there's not many people, girls in wheelchairs that are actresses, I'll be an authentic, you know, paralyzed, you know, person, girl, Um, and, you know, they would want me for movies, because I'm not the fake, you know, I'm the real thing, but maybe there's another kind of life where I, I did do that, but I chose to end up, you know, to go to the college near home with my friends, and then I met my husband, and now live in a little town, and have my t- have two boys who, one's fifteen and one's twelve, and you know, and, and and have a happy life with my husband and I. I received a degree in um, social work, and so I've been a counselor for young kids, and um, I also substitute teach and those kind of things. You know, I wouldn't have done that in the other life if I made that decision to go to USC and stay in Los Angeles. That kind of thing, you know, it's, it's the choices that you make in life and the directions that you go, it's, it's really interesting to think of if that it's like a game, you know, in a way, like, do you, you know, do you go to this or do, you do that? And my life went a whole different direction and I really wouldn't change it to go to LA and be famous. I'm, I, you know, I have my beautiful boys. I wouldn't have ever had them.
0: You mentioned that you were told to come back. Mm-hmm. And you also mentioned that you had these warning signs. So mm-hmm. I'm interpreting this as if you being shot was an accident
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you came back because, yes, you have something to do here, but it actually has nothing to do with you being in your situation in a wheelchair and your struggles. Right. You have, it right. could be something completely different
1: right (laughs) exactly I know I totally agree I don't
0: know who am I to interpret your life you know what I mean
1: no I mean like those the the theories and the thoughts like I've thought of so many different things that you know when even whenever you brought the, the concept of time that really like you know helped answer something for me that I wasn't thinking or hadn't thought of before you know those kind of things like to actually discuss that and that thought never you know even came to me and it makes sense so it's it's really feels good to put that together as well if that you -hmm. know I think a lot of this whole whole situation is hard for me to explain and it's beyond words in a way like it it makes sense over there but it's not you know nothing I can explain over here that world I can't explain very well (laughs) if that makes sense but Just what, the little that I can remember, because I wasn't, I I just know I was, I remember being there. I don't even know if I was supposed to remember being there, you know, that kind of thing. I don't know.
0: I think sometimes twins have some kind of unique ability, some kind of psychic ability or something, some kind Mm -hmm. of mysterious communication. Do you and your sister have that? And if so, has this experience changed it in any way
1: i yes definitely and i feel like you know when whenever we start thinking of each other a little more it's it's that we know that we got to contact each other or, or check on them or that kind of thing um it, i think my sister um was a lot to me whenever the shooting happened because it was like it was motivation like she was sent, she was there to be like, like the motivation to keep going. But if she got to do something, then I got to do something. Um, so she's like a um, motivator and and, and and there to help me along. Like some of the struggles that I've had, she's been there to help me in that situation. If something wasn't wheelchair accessible, she helped make it accessible. Um, and friends too. Um, I felt like we have that connection of, she knows what I'm feeling and how I'm um and what I need in order to keep me going if that makes sense and then I think I do that for her also it's like she's a helper that's kind of like her purpose in a way if if I feel like she's there to help me along and keep me going to help me fulfill what I'm doing so that's kind of like her purpose I remember even before the shooting it was like I took care of her a lot I was like the one to hold the money I was the responsible twin and then she became responsible for me and would take care of me so it was kind of we kind of switched roles in a way not that I, I wasn't irresponsible still I would still probably be the one that needed to hold the money but um, but you know she was a caretaker and and took care of others and especially me which made what I was dealing with easier when it could have been harder
0: Missy, after watching this podcast, people may want to reach out to you and ask you questions. Are you up for that?
1: Sure. Um, I have um, an email uh, that is I use for speaking, and I wouldn't mind anybody contacting me through that. Uh, that would be fine. Um, and I also wrote two books. So I have a website. Um MissyJenkins.com. so there's a way to contact me through that as well and to learn more about what i do as a motivational speaker and and what i've i guess my purpose and what i do what it just it shares you know what what I, what my purpose is
0: what are the titles of your books and where can people get them
1: Sure. The first book I wrote um, came out in it, it came out in two thousand eight, but revisions have done been done since then. Uh, it's called "I Choose to Be Happy." Uh, it's my memoir. It's a it's about what happened um, that that day, and then all the different things that unfolded later on in life, um, like what happened at his sentencing. There were appeals that he had, and and going through that and a lot of different things as time went on. He actually um, there's a chapter about him trying to contact me. My senior year, he called my house twice and he wrote me letters and I don't know how that happened, but that was something that I kind of had to get through. I actually met with him face to face in July of 2007 when I was like nine months pregnant about to have my first child, but I met with him in the penitentiary and talked to him for two and a half hours um, with him and his sister his sister was there and then I brought my twin sister so there's a chapter about that. there's a lot of stuff that I guess all the struggles that I've been through and and how I was getting through them and um, and getting married and and I guess like navigating life being in a wheelchair and like having relationships you know boyfriends and then friend situations and things like that. Um, so that's what that that book is about and it's sold it on at, at Amazon. I am not a writer whatsoever. So I have a co-author. It was amazing. Like, again, it was one of those things. He just happened to find me. Uh, he was a writer for the Cincinnati Enquirer. He did a lot of um, educational pieces in that, in that newspaper. And he happened to see a article about me speaking at a school, um, through the Associated Press and the Associated Press was, um, at the school while I was speaking. And a kid asked me at that time, because during my senior year, Whenever he was um the shooter was sending me letters and calling my house, I I told him, you know, like I don't want to have any contact, you know, to stop that. I'm trying to take care of myself. Cause I think he was trying to use me as a way to cause I because I was forgiving. He was trying to use me as a way to like a counseling kind of thing. And so I needed to take care of myself. And so I asked for all those things to be stopped for him to stop writing me letters and call my house. But then a, a The student asked me, would you ever consider meeting with him face to face? And that's when I decided, you know, now I I feel like I would be ready. I I, I would like to meet with him because I wanted I knew I wasn't going to get a reason why. And those kind of things. But that's but that's how um, the uh, my co-author found me. And his name is William Croyle. So if you look up, I choose to be happy. Missy Jenkins, William Croyle, you'll be able to find that book. And then my second book um, came out in 2017. It's called Lessons from a School Shooting Survivor. And so it's lessons that I've learned along the way, you know, being listening to people's stories Um, whenever I speak uh, afterwards and I I sell my book and I and I sign them to to students and I have kids that come up and talk, talk to me and tell me their story and feel compelled to share and that it's about listening to other stories. Um there's a, about there's a uh, chapter on uh, empathy. Um the effects of bullying, those kind of things because I think bullying played a, a, a part in the decision of, the, of what the shooter did. Um all those kind of things, things that all the lessons I learned that we should have that we could have done that would have made things different if we would have, you know, if we would have known then. And so I think that's that's my ability to share, you know, what what we did wrong so that others won't make the same mistake that we made, if if that makes sense. Um, but those two books are both sold on Amazon and William Croyle is my co-author for both of them. And if the um the uh lessons from a school shooting survivor is more of like an educational kind of piece, but it's also still it still has stories. It's still um it's still a a read that if, even if it wasn't being used as educational, but to read and and, and to hear more stories about my life along the way and what I experienced with those certain topics like empathy and and um, bullying and things like that.
0: Before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message?
1: Sure. Um, I would have to say um, you have a choice in life. You could be negative and angry about what's given to you in this life, or you can look at the positive positive and go for and look towards that because you have to make a choice it's your choice if you to to in what path you're going to go in life and if you want the path to be a good uh, situation you choose positive Um, I know that if I decided to feel sorry for myself and that Um, I thought, you know, I'm in a wheelchair. I can't do anything. I can't, you know, who's going to want to marry me because I'm in a wheelchair. You know, how, how can I take care of a child? If I had that mentality Then I wouldn't be where I am today, that I wouldn't have gotten married. My husband wouldn't have been interested in in me. Um, we met my junior year in college. And one of the things he said that when he saw me, um, he saw me smiling and I was out and I was doing things with people. And he said that when he saw me happy, he really didn't see the wheelchair anymore. It was more me, but that caught his eye that I was out doing things with life, even though I was dealing with what I was dealing with. And so if you, you have to put yourself out there and do those things that maybe you might not be comfortable doing to get the positive that you, you need to get. And if you make that choice, then you'll get what you want out of life and you'll, and you don't have to deal with so much negative. You may have, um, you know little uh, issues along the way like I've experienced but you also have to learn how to deal with those because it's like something will try to bring you down and you don't let it you just keep looking at the positive so you don't you know you get through the frustration but you keep looking at 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 the main goal and the positive and what you want and then that's how you're going to get it so it's it's you make the choice and how you live your life
0: Missy, thank you for that message and thank Mm -hmm. you for being my guest.
1: Thank you so much for having me and giving me the opportunity to share because it's been it's been like counseling for me. So thank you. You're my counselor today (laughs) and I and I hope that it helps someone else going through something similar or or answers questions that they have about life.
0: Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast.